Thank you, Jake. I invite you to turn now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we ask that you would bless this reading of your most holy word now in our minds and our hearts. Grant understanding to our minds. And help us to receive these words of the apostles with faith and obedience to the glory of the salvation you have given to us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray here this morning. Amen. Before God called me into the ministry, I worked for a while at a large corporation And the office I worked in had what seemed to me like a revolving door with some regularity. Individuals would enter in through that door as new employees. And then after what seemed like a brief time to me, they would exit as former employees. Supervisor-worker relationships can be difficult in the best of circumstances, can't they? I mean, there are deadlines. There are the pressures of the office. There are also difficulties that a supervisor or his subordinates may be working through in their personal lives, and all these things can combine to create a powder keg that can blow apart in the working place. But it also seemed to me that my supervisor contributed to the unhappiness of our office. It seemed to me that he managed by threats and by intimidation. He belittled at times. He dealt with subordinates as extensions of himself, I thought, and not as valuable individuals. And I hadn't worked there very long before my blood began just boiling at times underneath. Uh, There were Fridays where I might leave the office in the afternoon and I would stew all weekend. And then I would come back into the office on Monday. And I didn't want my supervisor to say anything to me because I was afraid of what I might do. And I found myself in a bit of a quandary because in many respects my supervisor was an honorable man. He worked hard. He was not a slacker. He worked very hard. 
And he expected those he supervised to work hard too. And he wasn't asking me to do anything immoral. He wasn't asking me to do anything illegal. But I still did not like him. And I was struggling to work peaceably with him. And then one morning, as I was spending time alone with the Lord, I read this passage with Paul's exhortations to servants and masters. They spoke to me, and they changed me. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. And I took those words to heart. It was as if the Spirit of God spoke to me wonderfully in that moment. And and as I took these words to heart and as I began learning not to concern myself with whether or not my supervisor liked me or complimented me on a job well done, I, I found myself beginning to learn to serve the Lord. I found myself serving the Lord I loved instead of the boss that I didn't like. It didn't matter whether I liked him or not. God called me to love him and to pray for him. It didn't matter whether I wanted to support him or not. Christ called me to honor him. It didn't matter whether I felt the strength to do any of these things or not. God called me to do them by faith. He called me to do these things according to his power that he promises is secretly at work in me. And so I learned to serve my boss as an expression now of my service of Christ. And I didn't do it perfectly, but with time, God not only changed my attitude, but he actually transformed my relationship with my supervisor. My supervisor came to trust me. He saw that I was committed to doing my work well simply as a matter of principle and not because my supervisor could threaten me or intimidate me. We even became friends and we worked successfully for years. Here's something interesting. After I had graduated from seminary and when I was in my first church, he called me and he tried to hire me back to himself was frustrating for my for my superior or my senior pastor but but sometimes sometimes we learn very very important lessons valuable lessons from people who are very very different from us if by god's grace we can make that relationship work god can make that kind of relationship very helpful very valuable and i learned valuable lessons from my supervisor that have served me well in the past now thankfully you and i live in modern day america we are not slaves we have not not been sold to a master but we may have sold 40 or more precious hours of our week to an earthly master and these instructions of paul's of how God could transform an ancient social order that we find unthinkable, slavery, has relevance 
to the work we do today. We see in Paul's instructions here lessons. Lessons about attitudes, lessons about purposes, lessons about perspectives that apply to our daily work. First, we must serve with a new attitude. We must serve in our place of work with a new attitude. The Roman Empire of Paul's day practiced slavery on a grand scale. Slaves made up anywhere between 20 to 35% of the population. Without its slaves, the Roman Empire could not have functioned as it did. Slaves performed a variety of roles, from the very menial to the significant. Some were educated, some served as tutors and teachers, others accumulated great wealth and even political power. Felix, the governor of Judea, whom Paul appears before in Acts 23, had been a slave who had gained his freedom and political power. It's estimated that between 81 and 49 B.C., half a million slaves were freed in the Roman Empire. Many Roman slaves were not economically and socially destitute as slaves were in other cultures. Even so, Roman slaves were basically the property of another person with few rights under the Roman law. The master had almost limitless power and slaves could be treated harshly. And given those realities, it sometimes surprises the modern reader of the Bible that Paul was not a first century abolitionist. It's not that Paul approved of slavery, it's simply that his concern was more practical than that. For one thing, Paul and the Christian community at this point were absolutely powerless to bring an end to slavery. But also Paul ministered with this deep conviction that the most important issues of life are not social, they are not personal convictions, as hard as that may be for us to accept. Instead, Paul's primary concern was fellowship with God, liberation from sin, transformation into the likeness of Christ, the growth of God's kingdom. Those were Paul's overriding concerns. But we do see, don't we, in this passage, how the gospel can transform working relationships and as a result, in time, even social institutions. Paul's emphasizing here What he's been saying already throughout this letter, that the Christian is different. The Christian is different. He is a new person. He has God as his Father. He has the mind and heart of Christ. He is filled with the indwelling power of God's Spirit. His life and his well-being are in God's sovereign hands. And because of these realities, he or she must exhibit a new attitude. The Christian slave's attitude in the first century has relevance to our attitudes in the workplace today. First, you and I must serve with fear and trembling. We must serve with a sense of fear and trembling. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ. How's that for an attitude? Serve with fear and trembling. Now this word fear can mean anything from terror to loving reverence. And loving reverence is the 
meaning Paul's after at this point. It has that kind of meaning just a little bit earlier in this letter, back in chapter 5, uh, verse 21, where the apostle exhorts us to submit to one another out of reverence or fear of Christ. But now Paul is taking this fear to a little bit higher level. We are to serve with fear and trembling. What's that mean? Here's what it means. When we turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When we go to his letter to the second Corinthians there, Paul says the Corinthians received Titus with fear and trembling. You see, in both cases, it comes down to this. Fear and trembling describe an attitude, an attitude of not wanting to let this particular person down because of the loyalty, because of the love, because of the devotion we have for that person, whether that person is the Lord or whether it's Titus. Fear and trembling, Paul says, must characterize the attitude of a believing slave toward his master in the first century, and fear and trembling must, in a sense, characterize the response we give to earthly masters in our day too. It's not a shaking in your boots, servile fear of man, but rather this deep respect, this honor for those who have authority over us because we know and we love the glorious king who stands behind them and is in full control of our circumstances. You see, with loyalty and love and devotion, we serve the master we know, Jesus, by serving our earthly master. And secondly, we must serve with sincerity of heart. In other words, we must honor and serve with an undivided heart, without these ulterior motives, without hypocrisy. We must honor our boss not only when he is present, but also when he isn't. We mustn't bring him down. We mustn't belittle him. We mustn't stab him in the back in the presence of others. My friends, that can be hard. I mean, I appeal to my own very imperfect example. My attitude toward my boss was transformed when I realized that Christ, the King and Master, was the silent partner in my workplace. I was to serve and honor Christ who loved me and gave himself for me by honoring my boss. When we, I remember in one particular instance when we were preparing for a very important public event, my boss saying to me as well as others saying, he said, your job is to make me look good. And at that point I was thinking that's the last thing I want to do. But I looked to the Lord for mercy. And I did my best. I did my best out of reverence for the Lord who stood behind my boss. The late John Stott writes these words. He says, it's possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. 
Stott says, can the same be said in relation to the masses of industrial workers with tedious routine machine minding to do? Yes. A well-known parable tells a story about three workmen who are working on a vast cathedral and the first, an observer asks them what they are doing. The first says, I'm chipping these stones. And the second says, I'm earning a wage. And the third says, I'm building a great cathedral. See, that's the new attitude we must have when we see our life and our place of work and the lives of those we serve as an edifice that we're involved building to the glory of God. And so, my friends, I exhort you, I say, in your place of work, in your school, in your sports team, in the organization that you're a part of, be God's person there. You see, be God's agent of change for good. By the power of the gospel as you do your work as unto the Lord. And then there's a second thing here. We must serve with a new purpose. Paul warns us not to serve by way of eye service and as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. The late Harold J. Ockenga, he pastored Park Street, Congregational Church in Boston, he helped establish two different seminaries. And he told the story about how when he was preaching in Poland, he was invited to visit Prince Carol Redzevol on his 1,300-acre estate. And at one point, the prince pointed to this young man standing by, and he, the prince said, you see that man? He is the best worker on my estate. It was due to him that I invited you here today. And then the prince explained that he was favorable toward any religion that could have the impact in a man's life that he saw in that young servant of his. You see, that's the power of the gospel. The gospel equips us to have a different purpose. What's it involve? We must not focus only on serving an earthly master. You see, when we do that, our service simply becomes eye service. It simply becomes people-pleasing. And you see, that's what I saw in myself. I saw how I contributed to my difficulties at work by my desire to have my boss's approval. I wanted strokes. I wanted attaboys. And when I didn't receive them, I got angry. I got resentful. Eventually, I saw I was consumed with people pleasing and courting the approval of others. The Bible calls that idolatry. And that kind of idolatry makes you anxious. It makes you fretful. It makes you resentful. It makes you covetous. It makes you thin-skinned. And secondly, we must focus ultimately on serving our heavenly master. May God help us find greater happiness in pleasing the Lord than in pleasing others. I realize sometimes it's impossible 
to please one's boss, regardless of the work that you do. But can you have joy? Can you have peace in a situation like that? Yes, you can if your desire is to please the Lord rather than men. A Christian servant's goodwill toward his supervisor is an expression of his obedience to Christ, the truest and the best master that we have. Serving him is the path of freedom and peace and joy. Man-pleasing often leads to moral compromise. And if it doesn't lead to that, it will certainly leave us anxious and irritable and empty. We must look beyond our earthly masters to our heavenly one and serve him. And as we do, Christ sets us free from our anxious servility to find joy and pleasure in our labor. Our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Never in vain. And then finally, we must oversee with a new perspective. In verse 9, Paul turns to Christians who were slave owners, who were overseers. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. You see, the Christian overseer has important responsibilities to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not only his master, but his slave's master as well. The overseer who has the Lord as his master solely because the master sought him and bought him out of slavery to sin and judgment by his sacrificial death must now oversee with a new gracious perspective. And what does that mean in practical terms? One thing it means this, treat others without partiality. Don't show favoritism. Paul says masters must do the same to them, to their slaves. In other words, they must relate to those under them, not according to the world's perspective, with all its social distinctions, with all its social prejudices, but according to God's perspective. Because you see, our God is not one who shows partiality. In his book, The Search for Dignity, R.C. Sproul describes the meaning of a phrase he heard used by a labor management expert in Pittsburgh when he was consulting with a, a steel mill there very many years ago. The phrase was dropping his head. And Sproul did not know what that phrase meant until one day he found himself in a hospital. And he was observing the kind of interaction between the workers there in that hospital and the kind of nonverbal communication that goes on between the doctors and the nurses and other staff members. And all of that kind of nonverbal represents a person's status. So he noticed how the nurses perked up when the doctor came in. The doctor enjoyed this position in the hospital's upper class. But as Sproul continued to observe the nonverbals, he saw then a man who was coming down the corridor and he was pushing a cart of soiled laundry. Now that man was a member of the hospital's lower class. He was a housekeeper. And the man was cheerful. He was enjoying camaraderie with the others. But then he comes to the nurse who had been alert to the doctor's presence. And the housekeeper sees the nurse, his face brightens, he raises his head, he expects a greeting. But instead the nurse turns away, the nurse looks at the floor, 
and just walks past quickly. It loses its cheer and his pace slows now. And Sproul realized what dropping. As I mean, us. of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have our salvation not because God has been partial to us, But simply by His grace, He has shown us that kind of favor even at the price of His Son. Our God is not a God of partiality. And if, boy, if we know that grace in our hearts, neither should we be. And then second, treat others without threatening. As parents are not to provoke their children to wrath, so masters are not to lead by continually threatening those they oversee. Overseen, managing by intimidation. This isn't to deny that in some circumstances punishment is legitimate. And it, it is necessary It's simply to say that the relationship that is based on continual use of threats isn't a relationship at all. It's a sort of bondage. Dr. Sproul says this. He says, sometimes we think that if Jesus were the boss of a work project, he would be so kind, gentle, and gracious that he wouldn't expect any work. But just a cursory glance at the New Testament where Jesus is constantly urging his people to be productive and diligent in their labor would show Jesus to be a demanding superintendent. He would expect those who were under his authority to give honest effort in a full day's work, yet at the same time there would be no partiality, no injustice, no petty criticisms, and no demeaning attacks on people's dignity. He is the perfect master who treats all those under his authority with love, tenderness, gentleness, justice, and righteousness. He is the model for anyone who is in a position of authority. One of the important lessons we learn here, I think, is how wrong it is to regard our witness and our work as two distinct things. They're not. We witness in the work that we do. You see, our attitude and our purpose and our perspective show whether or not we have truly taken the Lord's grace to heart and whether or not we do it for Him 
or for ourselves or for someone else. If the gospel could work within the slavery of the Roman Empire, it can work anywhere and under any circumstances. I realize that at times the grass looks greener somewhere else. But you see, the gospel's power is not dependent on favorable circumstances. It's not dependent on sympathetic people. It's dependent upon the grace and power of God alone, which are ours by faith in Jesus Christ. And you see, that assurance freed the spirits of first century slaves and overseers long before the abolition of slavery. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ could work in those circumstances, my friend, it can surely work where we spend 40 or more hours of our week. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we get a glimpse here in Paul's exhortation The bondservants and overseers, we get a glimpse of how the gospel can not only change our relationships with others, but how it can actually transform social institutions, how it can work for good in our place of work, in our place of school, on the sports team we may may be a part of, in the organization where we may be participating. Father, I would pray that if we know your grace and power in our hearts by faith alone in Jesus, I pray, make us agents for change, for good, and for the glory of the gospel wherever you and your providence place us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.